0: take five or ten minutes and um, just take some prayer requests and just pray for each other. overwhelming in a lot of ways. Uh, we're going to try to cover it in two weeks. Um, this first week, we're really going to just go into the history. So does everybody have a handout? Does anybody not have one? There might be a couple left in the lobby. Um, but It sounds like, just seems like just about everybody's got one. Thanks, Molly. So tonight, we're really going to go into kind of the history. We're going to talk about Muhammad. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the character of Allah. We're going to talk about how the Quran was form, uh, formulated and really kind of try to understand what Islam is. You know, it's, uh, it's a major deal. It's in the news every single day. Um, and, and so this week, we'll go into the history. Next week, we'll talk a lot more about current events. Uh, we'll talk about what God is doing around the world. Uh, we 'll talk about how, as Christians, we should um, respond to radical Islam and and things like that but the the, uh, the five things I want to try to cover tonight um, we 're going to talk about uh, Muhammad and the, is- the history of islam uh, we 're going to talk about the Quran and the hadith, how they were formulated um, how the Muslims' view of Muhammad this is really important um, and then and then we 'll go deeper and look at kind of what the critical sources say so we 'll look at what Muslims kind of think about it and then we 'll see what the what the critical Um, kind of scholarly look at it, Um, and hopefully we'll come away with an appreciation, because what we'll start seeing um, a contrast between how Islam was formed, you know, formed, and how Christianity was formed, and uh, really hopefully come away with an appreciation um, for our own beliefs in the Bible, and then uh, ultimately that God would give us a heart for Muslims, I think our response to um, Islam is really probably the most important thing. We can learn all this information, but if God's not changing our hearts and um, giving us a heart for, for Muslims, um, because I know a lot of us may not know Muslims in this room, but trust me, it's coming. It's, it, Islam is coming to the West, whether we like it or not. And uh, we're going to have the opportunity, I believe, in our lifetimes, especially our kids' lifetimes, to have a lot of interaction with the religion of Islam. Um, and so I think it's important that we're informed and we're prepared for it. So... Um, I have a lot of material, I'm going to try to go really fast. Um, I do want it to be open-ended, so if you have a question, please just get my attention and raise your hand and we'll try to cover it. Um, But uh, otherwise, I'm going to kind of speed through this and um, you'll kind of hopefully be able to follow along in your notes a little bit. So, very similar to Judaism and Christianity, um, Islam is an Abrahamic-based religion. Um, It's based largely on the history of Abraham, Abraham, that's the, the history behind it. Um, just as described in the Old Testament and in the Quran. And the Arab Muslims really believe that they're descended from Ishmael uh, and that they're the ones that are subject to the promises of God that uh, are really through Isaac. I, I gave you a separate handout. We're not going to talk about that. But there's a few reasons why, personally, I believe that um, it's really that common belief that you know Muslims are sort of descended from Ishmael um, and that we're sort of in this... like. Cosmic battle between the you know between the promise and and uh, and Ishmael through the Muslims, um, I don't believe is really true. You can't really um, look at it historically. So there's a few reasons in that document as to why I don't think that's really the case. But we don't really have time to get into it. Um, so really, the the key figure in Islam is Muhammad. And we have to look at his life. He's, he's, he's so critical to the, the religion of, of Islam that they're not even willing to really talk about his life in a lot of cases. Um, so I, I've watched a lot of debates over the last few weeks. And it's extremely rare, actually, to find a Muslim that's willing to even debate or talk about the life of Muhammad. They have this uh, authority structure that's sort of built in as the culture of their religion. And they just don't think that you should say anything wrong, say, say anything bad about their prophet. Um, and they believe that about some of the other prophets as well. And so, um, but it's really key. He's the one that formulated it. He's the one that, he's the single source of the Quran. So all of his revelations are what we have as the Quran. So the entire religion hinges around this one, this one figure. So, um, so here we go. Um, Muhammad, he was born in 570 AD uh, into the Quraysh tribe um, during a time of war between the Romans and the Persians. Um, he was an early orphan. His dad died uh, when his mother was pregnant. And, um, and then his mother died um, a few months after he was born, so he was raised by his uncle. And then when he was 40, uh, this is just kind of his personal life kind of stuff, when he was 40, he married a, uh, a 40-year-old widow. Her name was Khadija, and that becomes really important in his history later on. Uh, Muhammad's hometown um, is Mecca, and I'm sure you guys have heard of it. It's really the most important city in, in Islam. Um, He grew up there, and at the time, it was a polytheistic religious center for the entire Arab world. So just as it's sort of a hub now for for Islam, it was really a hub then for polytheism. And he was involved in his family business of selling goods to travelers, uh, and it was a huge business, and it still is to this day. Um, If you look at the kind of what we would look at as uh, like the Pharisees in the New Testament— that's kind of what this tribe was to, to Mecca. So it was a huge hub for tourism, and people would come in, and they'd be coming to worship, and they would you know, really try to sell them things and, and, and uh, try to make money off of them. And so it was a hu- you know, caravans constantly coming in, coming out. Um, huge business. And because of that, Muhammad got to travel extensively throughout the world, got to know um, all these different religions, all these uh, different people groups and things like that. Um, in Mecca, there was a large square stone temple called the Kaaba. Uh, it's still there to this day. Um, and at the time, there was 360 idols to various gods. I mentioned it was a polytheistic revel- uh, uh, religion. And then there was a black stone, which is believed to actually be a, um, a meteorite um, that's there, and it was considered holy. So there's this holy place that they would go. And, and uh, as we go through this, you'll see there's a lot of similarities to the current religion to the pagan religion that he just kind of carried over. Um, one of the gods worshipped there was the moon god, um, whose name was Allah. And Allah was the favored god of worship for Muhammad's family. So the way I think about this is it's kind of like a sports team. It's like that's the, when they'd go to the Kaaba, that was their, their favored one, and they, they'd worship Allah. Uh, that crescent moon is still the symbol. You see it all over the Muslim world. It's on top of the mosques. It's on their money. It's on flags. It's on a number of things. That's, that's because of Allah. Um, it was also common in those days to take a pilgrimage, at least one in your life, to Mecca to worship. And then during the pilgrimage, a visitor would, would uh, worship whatever god they chose. And then they'd run around the Kaaba seven times, which they do now still. Uh, they kiss the black stone, and then they go outside and they throw rocks at the devil. So It's a very pagan practice, and that's, they still do that to this day. Um, The pre-Islamic religious beliefs were extremely superstitious. Um, They included magic stones, charms, curses, genies, which they called jinn. um, And that's where that word comes from. And many of these are mentioned actually in the Quran. They were extremely superstitious people. Um, And it was also common in pre-Islamic days to bow down and pray towards Mecca at certain times of the day because this is where all the gods were set up. So it was just this religious center and so it was common to actually bow down and pray, just exactly like they do today. Okay, so Muhammad, in his call to prophethood, um, he was 40 years old when he had his initial vision, a revelation in a cave. He was actually fasting and praying for 40 days, and it said that the angel Gabriel came to him, and he told him to recite. Um, at this point, Muhammad replies. He says, I don't, I don't know what to recite. And so what Gabriel does, according to Muhammad, is he grabs Muhammad and strangles him. He throttles him and squeezes him. And Muhammad actually thinks he's about to die. And then he lets go and he says, recite. And this happens three or four times. And finally, the last time, Muhammad begins to recite the Quran. And um, he's actually totally illiterate. 99% of the people at that time are illiterate. So he's just memorizing what, what Gabriel is speaking to him at this point. And these become the initial surahs, which a surah in the Quran is like a section or a chapter. Um, and the initial revelation really centers on the oneness of God. So it's really changing over from polytheism to... Now, uh, Muhammad is going to say, no, Allah is the only true God, and he's really, at this point, kind of pushes uh, monotheism. Um, but his experience in the cave is so traumatic, he actually comes home to his wife and he says, you know, cover me up with a sheet. Um, he actually thinks he's possessed by a demon at that point. And he just he doesn't tell hardly anybody. Um, for about two or three years. Um, He becomes very depressed at this point. He thinks he's totally possessed by a demon. He tries to commit suicide. He tries to jump off a cliff a couple times and and doesn't do it. But his wife keeps encouraging him. Uh, Khadijah uh, keeps encouraging him that um, the visions were actually from God. So, in 613 AD, so three years after this vision, this is when he sort of officially starts uh, preaching in Mecca. He goes to the to the, um, the Kaaba, and he starts actually preaching this monotheism. Uh, four years later, 617, there's about 40 converts. His first couple converts are like his nephew. His nephew's 10 years old. Um, a couple, couple random people from his family, and he slowly starts building up these converts. Um, in 622 AD, the, the leaders of Mecca start getting very upset. And they're upset, just like the Pharisees were upset in the Bible, because they're Uh, threatening the trade in the area. And um, if Muhammad's coming up and he's gaining popularity and says, wait a minute, all these other gods are false gods. Uh, Allah is the only true God. It it really threatens the commerce um, in that that area. So they they actually throw him out. He goes to Medina. Um, This is a very famous part of the history of Islam. It's called the flight or the Hegira. And what he does is it's a small city, Medina. So he goes in and he immediately takes control. So He turns Medina into the first Muslim city. Um, At the time, there's actually two Jewish tribes in the city. One he kicks out, he expels. The other one he slaughters. Um, And this really begins as like the first part of history that shows um, kind of the animosity between Islam and and the Jews. Um, The first large-scale battle was called the Battle of Badr. Um, When Mecca marched out, they were getting so sick of Muhammad um, going out. And, And so what Muhammad did when he got to Medina... Um, just within a few months' time, he started to raid the caravans. What he really wanted is he wanted to get back to Mecca. He wanted to go back to his hometown, convert Mecca. And so he started raiding the caravans. And you'll see over, the life of, over his life, he slowly becomes more and more violent. Um, and we'll see that progression in the Quran as well, actually. He, um, there's a lot of verses about peace in the Quran. And most of those are actually from his early life and early ministry. As he progresses, he gets more and more violent, more battles, more bloodshed. Um, you'll see, um, for example, in Surah 9, that's one that you probably have heard of. That's where it talks about, you know, kill the Christians and the Jews, wherever you find them. It becomes more and more violent. And uh, as he kind of progresses through his life, um, that's what happens. Um, the, 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 his recitations become more and more violent um, from the Quran. Um, Okay, so this, this battle of Badr, um, he has an army of 300 men, um, and they beat the Quraysh Meccan army of about 1,000. Um, this is actually a huge battle in the history of Islam. They say it's their biggest battle. They're very, very proud of it, um, and they, talk, they still talk about it to this day. They celebrate it. So within one year, he finally has enough men. He has about 10,000 men. And then he marches on Mecca, but he captures it with no bloodshed. So he totally overwhelms Mecca at this point. He goes in, he immediately destroys the 300 idols in the Kaaba, and then he declares Allah as the one true God, monotheism. And Muslims, even to this day, so, show, they say... You know, this is one of the reasons why Muhammad is, he's so merciful. This proves how merciful he is because he came into the city and he really forgave everyone. He didn't, he didn't uh, besides a couple assassinations, he didn't really do anything bad to the people or anything. Um, and they're, they're constantly using little examples like that to show how, how merciful Muhammad was. Um, all right, so a little bit more about Muhammad. He had 22 wives. Um, and one really important thing I want to kind of get across tonight is that the Quran was built up piecemeal over, over time as he received new revelations and he'd recite them. The word Quran actually means recited. Um, and as each recitation would come, he would tell the people which surah to put it in and then he'd remove or change sections as he got new revelations. This is called the doctrine of abrogation. Um, so the, it, it's really important. So it's not like the New Testament where we have an entire book that's a letter and we have the entire thing. Um, imagine the New Testament, if we received one verse at a time from God from every different part. So all of a sudden God says, okay, here's Revelation 2 verse 10 and here's Thessalonians 3 verse 1. And you get it piece by piece. And then that person that's receiving it has to figure out which chapter it goes in and which book it goes in. And, and the, the Quran reads that way. It really has no context to it. Um, it's all over the place. It's, it's very confusing. Um, and so, and and it's because he orally received everything. He would receive one verse at a time and he would tell them, okay, yes, put it in, put that in Surah 9 or put that in, in this or that or the other. And so, um, during these revelations, um, and by the way, all this information, I think it's important to, to note, um, these are not from secular sources. These are actually from Muslim sources. So, um, you know, there's... It very very clearly comes from all of that. Um, and as I, as I progress, um, there's crazier and crazier things that I'm going to mention, but just, just want you to uh, put that out there, that it's all from their, their information, their, um, their uh, historical books. So during a lot of these revelations, he'd actually fall on the ground, he'd start convulsing, and he'd start foaming at the mouth. Um, after the revelation, he'd get up and then, you know, if he'd have one of these episodes, he'd fall down, he'd start shaking, and they'd all get ready to hear something, because they knew when he got up that he would, that he would say something, that it, that, Quran, that uh, God would give him gave him a message, so he would, uh, they, they'd need to be ready at that point. So some scholars actually believe that he was epileptic, um, and in that culture, it was believed that this kind of behavior was actually a gift from God, uh, or it could mean that you're possessed by a demon as well. So... Uh, the moment he dies, I already mentioned this. The Quran stops; it's considered complete at this point. So, the moment he dies, you know, it's like, okay, God has given everything that He wants to give now, and the Quran is completely done. You know, and so it's through one man that this religion is created, and uh, I think that's a that's important. That's why we spend so much time looking at his life. Um, his name is actually only mentioned four times in the Quran. Um, Scholars have to really heavily rely on the hadith and um, a couple early biographies to learn more about his life, and that's where a lot of this information comes from. Muhammad um, had massive success with Muslim with, uh, with with the spread of Islam. He conquered most of Arabia in only thirteen years and if you look at maps, the first caliphs that came after he died um, they, they spread very aggressively, so all through North Africa, lots of parts of Europe, all the way to Spain, uh, you know far north up to northern Turkey, um, and then pretty far um, east as well and uh, Another thing I want to mention is that um, just about every belief in Islam can be traced back to a pre-Islamic religion. Um, and ultimately, Muhammad, uh, he, in my opinion, he fused many religions together to make Islam. So you'll find bits and pieces of everything here. It's Arabian paganism, Judaism, Christianity, Gnosticism, and, and others. Um, so Muhammad died in um, 632 AD. There's At this point, you have a massive split between... Uh, of the history after Muhammad died. There's a lot of consensus of his life, but then after he dies, there's all this infighting, and there's a lot of crazy things that happen, and this is where all these sects come from. Um, And so, um, according to the Sunnis, uh, Muhammad died by poisoning at the hand of a Jewish woman. This is the most common belief. Um, According to the Shias, um, Aisha, his wife, poisoned him. We'll talk about her in a minute. Um, And then after Muhammad died, there was a series of caliphs that took over. That's that's like a a leader, a supreme leader. The Sunnis believe that the line of succession went to Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and then Ali. Uh, And then Sunnis also highly regard Muhammad's wife, Aisha, as a very key figure. She's extremely important in the the Sunni sect of, of Islam. And then the Shia, this is a smaller group. We'll talk a little bit more about kind of the modern beliefs of them next week but uh shia actually means the followers of ali so that that uh that fourth one that the the sunnis look at the caliph ali the the shia actually believe that he was the the really the true um uh should have really truly inherited um the the kingdom after after muhammad um and and after muhammad's death there was a huge battle uh between what kind of ultimately became the followers of Sunni and the followers of Shia. Uh, Shia actually won. Uh, It was Aisha. She had about 10,000 men and Ali had about 30,000 men and Aisha's army got totally wiped out. And uh, this really, what a lot of scholars believe, they trace this back to the split between Sunni and Shia. And it's a significant split. Like I said, we'll talk about it next week. But there's plenty of Sunnis and plenty of Shias that don't even believe that the other are Muslim at all. They believe that they're total anathema, apostasy, like they don't believe... Um, true Islam. So it's a pretty significant split. So some of the things that Muhammad accomplished, um, and I actually looked high and low to f- look at some of these things. I think uh, Muslims would, would tell you probably quite a bit more, but uh, it was difficult to find some of the things that were positive uh, for him. But at the time in the culture, it was a really common practice to kill babies if they couldn't afford to raise them. So it was like a, like a post-birth abortion. Um, and this was mostly girls, just because they couldn't, uh, they couldn't work, provide for the family. Uh, Muhammad stopped this practice. Um, he was very dedicated to social reform. Um, and this is really what Muslims will point to as a very positive thing in Muhammad's life, was his, all of his social reforms. Um, he helped widows and orphans. Um, they believe that a lot of this has to do with the, with the fact that his first wife was a widow and that he was an orphan, so he had a lot of empathy. Um, he gave some extra rights to women and children. Um, He gave a woman's testimony, half that of a man. Uh, You may have heard that. That's part of Sharia law today. Um, Before, they had no ability to testify as well, so they view that as a good thing. And then he ended polytheism, which um, ultimately I think is a good thing. All right, so some of the key issues that modern Muslims will find objectionable in Muhammad's life. Um, And I've I've looked at a lot of... um, testimonies of Christians that that were Muslims. And um, really, I think it's important to note that it really was the life of Jesus and the Bible and visions and dreams and a number of other things that that brought them to initial um, being open to the gospel. It wasn't somebody coming in and saying, oh, look how bad Muhammad was. was. Look how much of a horrible person he was. But once God opened that door in their heart, they would begin looking at their own scriptures. They'd look at the Quran. They'd look at the Hadith in particular and actually see and look at for themselves what Muhammad was like. And that really just was the nail in the coffin for them. And then that's what, what drove them to Christ. Uh, one of my favorite guys I've, I've watched probably just a few hours of his stuff just this week is um, Nabil Qureshi. Um, he actually works for RZIM, uh, Rabbi Zacharias International Ministries. If you're not familiar with Rabbi Zacharias, by the way, I think I think the world of him. I think he's probably the top Christian thinker in the world today. Um, But uh, incredible ministry. And uh, this guy has just a phenomenal testimony. So I would really highly recommend him. Um, But one of the things that sealed it for him was this verse in the Quran um, about the rape of prisoners of war. And Muhammad in the Quran condoned um, raping of the prisoners of war. And uh, the Quran you'll find... Is a lot more sterile than the hadith are. There's it's just, uh, there's a lot of, um, it's a lot of, it's like almost like poetry, a little bit. Um, there's a lot of, um, things that you can't really be clear on. It's not a lot of specifics, but the hadith is extremely specific about Muhammad's life and his sayings and things like that. But this was a verse in the Quran that was extremely offensive to Nabil, and that's what caused one of the things that caused him to become a Christian. Um, Another thing, um, he, this is one that's commonly cited. Um, when uh, he was 49, he married a six-year-old. Um, her name was Aisha, and she later became a very his most famous wife, um, and he brought her into his home uh, when she was nine, so they con- he consummated the marriage when she was nine. Um, there's another piece here that's really commonly cited um, about, about the satanic verses, and um, oftentimes in Muhammad's early ministry when he was teaching or leading prayer, Um, In Mecca, he would receive a revelation, and then people would be kind of like, that doesn't really seem to match up. And so one of these first ones, the most famous, is that one day he had a revelation. He said, "Um, by the way, when you're praying, it's okay to pray to these three other Meccan gods, uh, Alat, Aluza, and Manat. And everybody's like, well, what about Allah? He's the supreme God. Well, he later came back and recanted and said, no, that was Satan that gave me that verse. Um... And he went back and, and there was a whole year where he was giving this like these like false revelations. Um, and he later comes back to the people and says that it was from Satan and that it's really common for prophets to receive these kind of messages from Satan. Um, he said that he was under black magic during that year. And later on in his life, he even said that uh, it was the Jews' fault, that they, like, hexed him, and it was their fault. Um, so... Other major problems that Muslims have, have issue with, assassinations, power struggles, genocides, rape, slavery, all the things that you can imagine. Um, his life was dominated by violence, and he spread his new religion via conquest. And as I mentioned before, it wasn't just immediately. He was an incredibly genocidal maniac. He, it, it really kind of built up over time. He started off as a peaceful person. Um, he started you know, raiding these caravans, and he took over Mecca. And as... Um, he gained more control. He became more violent and figured out that he could spread Islam via, via conquest, via violence, and things like that. Next week, we'll talk about, um, there's been these studies that show what happens when Islam is introduced into a culture. And uh, they talk about, okay, when Islam is 1% of the population and then they're 5%, and build all the way up to 80%, they become more violent and more um, aggressive as, as that, that percentage rises. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. One of the interesting things, and this will be one of the last things on on Muhammad, is I believe that there's a lot of similarities. Um, As I was kind of studying this, it really reminded me a lot of Joseph Smith. And there's a lot of similarities. So I wrote down a few of these here that um, I was able to think of. So um, both were visited by angels and received uh, a new revelation um, both were supposed to restore the long lost faith of the one true religion. So they went back to all these other scriptures that had been around for a long time and said, no, no, they they've been corrupted. That's, that's not what they what, you know, especially Joseph Smith. He had to say, gosh, 1800 years ago, you know, that's, um, or 18, yeah, um, that things have been changed. Um, so huge time periods in between there, um, both claim that their holy books are stored perfectly in heaven. Both are very violent. Both were polygamists. Uh, both var- borrowed from multiple religions to incorporate a lot of paganism. Uh, and both have follow-up revelations that changed or corrected previous revelations. Um, and I mentioned violence, too. A lot of people don't know that um, Joseph Smith was a very violent person. Um, he actually died in a gun battle in a bar. I don't know if, you, if anybody knew that. Um, that was shocking to me when I, when I found that out. Yes? Joseph Smith is the founder of the Mormon Church. So there's a lot of history there in the early formation of the church that um, I don't think the Mormon church really wants to admit or talk about. Um, but um, anyway, so another another study. <laughs> All right. Any questions there before I go into some of their books, the Quran and the Hadith specifically? <clears throat> Let's go through this next section, and I think I'll answer some of that. Um, the scope of this isn't going to go quite into the biblical account, um, but I think once you see how the Quran was form, you know, formulated and, and built, that I'll answer some of that. And so, but again, I would, as I mentioned, it, if you come to the opportunity where you're witnessing to someone, I would start with Jesus. You know, start with their objections of Christianity and give them all the answers that that they want, because there are very, very good answers for those questions uh, for Christianity, how the books are formulated, um, the, the strength of the text, all that all that is, is so strong. You can make such a strong case uh, for biblical authenticity. And then if they're willing, then you could go into their books, and the, the contrast is pretty striking. So, <clears throat> any other questions? <clears throat> Okay, so let's talk about the Quran. This is their most holy book. Um, So first, I'm going to give you the Muslim view. Okay, so this is the view that most Muslims would tell you that are informed. Um, And then we'll kind of talk about more of the critical view. So Muhammad himself did not write or prepare the manuscript of of the Quran. He simply had people around him that would listen and memorize and then sometimes write down the resuscitation if there was somebody there that could write. Um, and most of the time this was on whatever was available, so bones, leaves, rocks, um, and that and that's, sounds like an exaggeration, it's true, that's, that's what they, they, they say um, when they were writing things down. When, when Muhammad died, uh, there was no standardized text of the Quran at all, it was still on various materials, and largely it was orally being passed from person to person at that point. Um, Abu Bakr, he is the first caliph, he's the first leader after Muhammad, he ordered all the materials and all the oral verses to be collected, and he tried to compile everything, he failed. Um, 17 years later, the third caliph, Uthman, he attempted to finish Abu Bakr's work, Um, he commissioned a man named um, Zayn ibn Thabit to kind of codify the Quran, bring it into one one place and and bring it all together and seal it. and so what he does is he goes out, he actually interviews people that uh, have talked to, to, to Muhammad, that have heard all these different verses and revelations and everything, and then he, he gathers whatever written materials that he can, and then he collects and he creates what he believes is the best version. And now remember, um, three out of the first four caliphs died from assassination. So That gives you kind of an idea. There, there's so much infighting going on here. And so he's collecting things that fit his agenda so these other guys that maybe don't really follow what he believes, um, you know, he's he's trying to put all that put all that away. So and he and he really does this by force. He actually collects all this. He creates his version of the Quran, and um, he actually burns everything else. So all of his own source material, everybody else's sources, he burns everything. So and he creates five versions, and that's it. There's no other besides the oral passing on. There's nothing else. And this is. To me, that's shocking um, that, that that's all we have are these five. And then he threatened everybody and said, if you don't accept this, you're going to be um, kind of excommunicated or killed. Um, supposedly, two of these survive today. Um, and they're not the originals. They're copies of copies of copies. Um, and the two of them are actually very different from each other. So it creates a whole bunch of confusion. what What's original, what's, what's not. But most Muslim, Muslims will say, um, if you ask them, you know, where did the Quran come from? Well, well, we have Uthman's, we have his, his Quran. Uh, but if you, if you really look at it, you say, well, we, you know, the earliest one we have is a few hundred years old. Um, it's from the late ninth century. It doesn't match uh, the other ones that we have. And um, you can kind of start uh, digging that out. And, and uh, it's shocking to, I think, a lot of Muslims. Um, By the way, this account of the collection of the Quran is in Sahih Bukhari. That's the Hadith. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, And it's generally agreed upon by most Muslims of how the Quran was created. So everything we just talked about is what Muslims, how they would describe the Quran being created. So let's talk about now more the critical view. Um, It's really important to realize uh, and understand that at that time in their culture, that the vast majority of the population was totally illiterate. Um, So everything revolved around an oral framework. Everything was oral. Um, they, they passed on stories, they passed on information, um, they passed on um, uh, genealogies and things like that. Uh, and the majority of the Quran was formulated from the passing of person to person, um, not from that written source. Um, and another thing that's important, there's been, a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of work done on this in the last 50 years or so that really have studied pre-Islamic culture um, and they've realized they, they've seen that they don't place a lot of high value on a verbatim um, a verbatim copy of something. Um, really, maintaining the meaning behind the oral um, version of a story is what's really important. It's not the it's not the verbatim. And um, this this was like a revelation to me thinking about this because we, when we go to study the New Testament and we see a document, let's say we we see two versions of Mark and they come from two different uh, parts of the world, Maybe we have an Eastern version and a Western version from the, as the church has passed it on right and there 's one word that 's different. You know we will spend thousands of hours you know scholarly hours looking at why are those words different and, and we, we, we care so much about the letters and the words and all the, you know where they came from, but that 's because we come from a literate cult- culture and the the culture that created the New Testament documents, you know most of them spoke two languages um, they, they were a, much more advanced in their um, education, and they, were, and they were mostly literate. And so um, you can kind of start seeing some of the reasons why there's so many differences and so many problems with the Quran. Um, and it, and you know it's just at that time, it was just more of an oral uh, passing on. And so um, just found that to be very interesting. Um, scholars have also shown that pre-literate cultures think very differently than literate ones. Um, Their oral traditions don't follow any kind of a set structure. Um, Stories are often developed and then retold with more or less detail as time goes on, and that's not considered um, uncommon. Um, An example are, there's a number of stories that are actually repeated in the Quran. Uh, One, uh, there's a story about Satan refusing to bow down before Adam. It's actually repeated seven different times in the Quran, and each time it's pretty, pretty different. Um, and that's just because it was, if you can imagine, people telling a story and then another person telling a story and then telling it to this person, and it just comes out different. It's, it's like the, the game of telephone. Um, many scholars are actually, this is kind of uh, more recent um, scholarship, they're actually saying that they don't, they don't believe Muhammad actually even intended the Quran to be written down at all, because everything was oral. He would pass things on. Um, According to many um, in the Hadith, uh, the word Qur'an um, was actually used to describe the oral recitation. So Muhammad would say something like, you know, when you go to pray, recite the Qur'ans that you have. Basically, pray the parts of the oral oral stories that you remember Muhammad talking about. So Qur'ans at that time were were meant uh, to mean recitations. And not until the book was codified was the word actually Qur'an used as a noun to describe a book. Um, The Arabic script, too, Um, so really was an early, early, early um, formation going on of the Arabic script. It was just being developed. So 4th and 5th century is actually when the first script emerges. So just really recent, within 100, 200 years of Muhammad's life, um, the Arabic script is just coming on the scene. Um, There are literally no Arabic literary works at the time of the Quran. So the Quran is the very, very first Arabic literary work that comes out. Um, The Arabic script was also incomplete, um, and wasn't even able to capture the full vocabulary. So there were words that they would speak in their day-to-day lives that um, Arabic couldn't capture yet. And the script at the time, um, because this culture was so orally based, it was actually not meant to be a standalone device for communication. It was supposed to be used in conjunction with the oral record. So almost like like shorthand. Um, So somebody would write something shorthand, it's really just meant to remind you of something that you already know. Um, So those are some kind of key things about um, how oral their culture was and how difficult it was to then take that um, and then codify it into a written work. Um, Many of the stories from the Quran and the Hadith come from pre-Islamic sources. Um, So a number of the stories um, uh, come from Gnostic Jewish Christian apocryphal books, um, Sabaeans, so they, they were pagans at the time, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, and more. Um, and really, I think there's a very good reason for this. It's because Muhammad traveled all over the place in trade in, er, early on. So he heard stories. Remember, everything's oral. So he's sitting around the campfire at a caravan with all these other religions, Christians and Jews. He interacted with all these people, and he heard all of their stories and, and learned everything. And th- those all got kind of uh, sometimes twisted Passed along, sometimes accurately, sometimes not accurately. Um, You know, there's a number of stories from the Bible and the Quran that have totally weird, uh, if you've ever heard or read, um, totally different stories. (laughs) He's totally changed them. Um, And so, um, there are even verses in the Quran that actually predate Islam. Um, The other night, I was Googling, you know, what is the earliest uh, manuscript of the Quran that we have, and uh, this this uh, manuscript was found. It kind of matched up with the Quran, and they, they did some dating on it and trying to figure it out. They actually dated it 200 years before Muhammad lived, um, and this was said to be part of the Quran, and it actually came before he lived. So you could see he's taking things from things that already existed uh, to formulate it. Um, let's see how we doing on time. Got 15 minutes. <clears throat> Let's see. Okay. I'm going to skip just a couple little things here. Um, I mentioned this, but when you pick up a Quran today, it really assumes that you already have a very vast knowledge of the culture and events of that time already. Uh, Most of the Quran is made up of, um, of brief accounts and statements made by Allah or Muhammad with no context in which to explain them at all. And that's because they came... Piecemeal, the whole the whole Quran came piecemeal. Uh, as an example, Allah is never introduced at all. It's sort of assumed that you're in the seventh century, you already know who Allah is. So there's no there's no introduction. Uh, there's not a lot of information about that. Um, okay, so few examples, uh, and I'll just read through these quickly. But um, there's hundreds of these. If you Google problems with the Quran, contradictions with the Quran, there's um, scientific errors, there's um, historical errors, many, many problems, but I just picked a few here. So in contradiction to secular history, the Kaaba uh, in the Quran, it says, was built by Adam and then later rebuilt by Abraham. Uh, the Jews made a golden calf because the Samaritans told them to, but the Samaritans actually didn't exist yet. Um, the Quran claims that Alexander the Great was Mus- was a Muslim. Um it says that the earth was created in eight days, and then it contradicts itself and says it in six days. Um, Solomon overheard a conversation between ants. Um, on human embryos, the bones form first and then the flesh. Um, the presence of mountains prevents earthquakes. Um, everything is made in pairs. Fruits have genders. Um, he's really, you'll see he's really obsessed with like inanimate objects. Um, he thinks that they can talk and have genders and things like that. Um, that's, a lot of that comes out in the Hadith. Um, some examples of Arabian stories that already existed before uh, Muhammad came and were repackaged. Uh, tons of um, legends about genies or jinn. Um, there was a famous Arabian story about um, a she camel that came out of a rock and became a prophet. Um, an entire village that was turned into um, apes because they broke the Sabbath. Um, and then there was a kind of a Rip Van Winkle story about seven men and animals that slept in a cave for 309 years and then woke up. Um, Okay, so the Hadith. This is sort of the secondary source. And most Muslims, um, especially the first couple um, Hadith that were created, are are very important to Muslims. And even if they don't read them, they know that it's important. They know that um, a lot of good information comes um, about Islam from from these Hadith. Um, And the Hadith really are a compilation of the sayings of Muhammad and then the actions of Muhammad. They call this the Sunnah. And uh, they, this really, the hadith is so, so critical. It's so, so important because the Quran doesn't, if you pick up a Quran and you read the whole thing, it doesn't tell you how to be a Muslim. It just gives information about Allah. It gives lots of stories. Like I said, there's very little context. It's it's kind of all woven together and um, there's not beginnings and endings and things like that. The hadith is what really, Gives the you kind know, of the raw details of here's how you become a Muslim, here's how you pray, here's how you uh, do hajj with it, which is the the pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, all these different you know uh, things, and we will talk about that next week. Um, the hadith goes into all of that. Um, so there are many different hadith. Uh, Muslims actually grade them based on the sect that they're in. So based if you're a Sunni or a Shia, you'll have different you know hadiths that you think are most uh, more important to you. Um, the earliest ones come out about 200 to 250 years after his life. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of these hadith, um, which is why they're graded. There's a whole science that, that, they, that behind this. Um, and it's, they, they base it on the strength of the transmission, the number of surviving texts, and things like that. This is very similar to the way the Quran was formulated. So you have these people that interacted with Muhammad and he would tell a story, or they would see what he would do, or they would see what he would say, and they would remember that, and that's what later became the hadith. So it's like the, um, it's for you know it'd be like for us it'd be like what the disciples would say about Jesus' life. What did he like to eat? What did he like? What did he do? You know, all those little raw details that we don't have. Um, but about Muhammad, there's just there's literally hundreds of thousands of these. And so, uh, the most famous famous is by a man called Imam Bukhari. Um, it's called Sahih Bukhari. Sahih means like trusted work. Um, you can actually just go and read it yourself at sahibbukhari.com. Uh, it's massive, nine volumes. Um, he lived in the ninth century. So as the story goes, there was supposedly somewhere between 500 and 700,000 of these, and he threw away 99% of them um, and whittled that down to about four or 5,000 um, verses that make up the Hadith now. So the second most famous hadith is actually Bukhari's student. So it's a lot of the same information, very similar. It's called Sahih Muslim. His name was um, uh, Imam Muslim. Um, So I'm not going to get too much more into the hadith, um, but I will say um, I'm going to go through this list of things, and they get kind of more and more ridiculous as I mention them, but these are things that come, you can go online, you can read them. These are all things uh, that Muslims um, believe, even though a lot of them haven't read these things; um, they, these are all from the hadith. So we learn that um, Muhammad was a, a racist, black slave owner. He preferred black slaves. Um, he was short-tempered. He did not like answering questions. He did not like humor. Um, he was extremely violent. Um, uh, he was not sinless. He actually says that himself. Um, he really liked to dye his hair red. Um, he had lice. Um, it describes the seal of prophethood on Muhammad's back. So. Um, Muhammad had this massive mole on his back. It's supposed to be like the size of like a fist, this huge hairy mole. And they believed in that culture that was actually the sign of prophethood. They called it the sign of prophethood. You have a question? Say that again? Sinless mean? Like he didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Hadith, yeah. Is that in the Quran? It's not. It's separate work. So it's all the, many of them will, like the, the most devout Muslims will, but really the hadith, for the most part, they will allow imams and other leaders and things like that to kind of interpret the hadith for them. It's freely available to them. They believe it. If you ask them, they say, yes, I, we believe, you know, Sahih Bukhari is the most trusted work, and I, I totally believe everything in it, um, but they don't read it too much, um, and I think a lot of it is because it shows um, a lot of bad things about Muhammad's life. You know, just about everything we talked about tonight was all from the Hadith, um, and then from about his earliest biography, which is only a couple hundred years after his life, and, and all of those works are very trusted Islamic works, you know, so... Um, See here, um, the full description of how he would fall down when he had a revelation, and with you know, his, his like seizures is all there. Um, some of the miracles that Muhammad performed, um, he uh, is said to. You know, you'll see a lot of similarities between him and Jesus, and I think it's. Um, I don't know what to really make of it, but um, it says that he cut the moon in half. Uh, he made a baby palm tree cry. Um, there was many times that he produced water out of his fingernails. Um, he multiplied bread on more than one occasion just like Jesus um, he made food shout um, he, he's very like I said he's very big on inanimate objects a um, lot of superstition around inanimate objects um, his chest was split open by Gabriel his insides were washed with special water it's called zum zum water um, you can actually go and buy zum water from Mecca I don't know where it comes from but it's a, that story is, is very important um, he made a grave to not accept the body of a Christian that had died the ground spit him out um, in a vision, he went on a journey to Jerusalem. This is actually a very famous story. Um, he talked to Adam, Moses, Jesus, and Abraham in that vision. Um, this, is one, this is probably the only reason that they can show that Jerusalem is important to them. Uh, they will say, most Muslims will say, uh, yes, Muslim, uh, you know, um, Muhammad traveled to, um, to Jerusalem There's no evidence in any of their works that he traveled to Jerusalem except in this dream. So some sects will say, well, it wasn't really a dream. He did actually travel there. But that's one of the only reasons why they say Jerusalem is a holy city for them. There's no other real reason besides their hatred for the Jews, um, in my opinion. Um, Many times he produced rain and drought. He healed a blind person with his spit. Um, His spit became water to give to thirsty people. Um, Some of the other crazy things... um, as you wash uh, in the morning before prayers, you, you need to snort water um, up your nose because Satan lives in your nose at night. Um, and, and this is still a modern practice. I was looking this up the other night to see what they, they said about it, and they don't really totally know why they do it, but they actually take water and they snort it up their nose. And then um, the, the, the couple modern people I saw online were talking about it. Like, you yeah, know, it just it cleans me out, and it's just I've always done it since I was a kid, and my parents taught me to do it. And um, that's just, it's just very common. Um, the Hadith says that Adam was 90 feet tall. Um, if a fly lands in your drink, don't worry, because one wing has the poison, but the other has the antidote. Um, angels um, won't enter a house that has, has dogs. Um, and supposedly, I couldn't find a source on this, but it said Muhammad uh, hated dogs, and to this day, they're very rare to see in Islamic countries. I don't know if that's still true or not. Um, and then another aside... Um, Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran. Uh, supposedly his first order when he took command was that uh, he wanted to kill all the dogs in Iran. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, I read that. Um, stars were created by Allah to be missiles to throw at devils. Um, genies and spirits eat dung and bones. Fevers and yawning are from hell. Satan urinates in the people, uh, in the ears of people that fall asleep during prayers. That's my favorite one. Um, um, Allah will not... <laughs> Um, so you can kind of read through these. They're, they're pretty wild, um, some of these. Um, Muhammad predicted that the world would end in 100 years. Um, all right. Are you guys okay if we go 10 more minutes? We'll go about five after. Everybody okay with that? Okay. Uh, this is this part's important. So the, the person of Allah. Um, you know, I think a lot of... Um, Postmodern thought and, and, you know, a lot of people that don't really look into the details, they can't be bothered to look into the details of, of different religions, you know, would say that Allah is really the same God as the God of the Bible. He's, uh, it's a monotheistic religion. They just have different titles and, you know, you're basically the same thing. Um, but I think in order for that to be true logically, you really have to look at both religions and you'll see that he's just a dramatically different. And I'm going to show you some of those um, some of those attributes here. So, um, and I think this is a conservative look, by the way. I don't think this is a really critical look. I think this is the way Muslims would describe Allah as well. Um, Allah is unknowable. Uh, one translation of the word Allah is unknowable one. Um, he's so powerful. So their view is he's so powerful, so great, so mighty, um, that he's just unknowable. Um, and so contrasted to the God of the Bible that we can have a personal relationship There's a major contrast there, um. Allah is not personal in any way. Um, Major contrast to the God of the Bible. Um, Allah is not limited by anything, so He's so powerful, He's so mighty that He can change. He can change His mind. He can He can do anything that He wants because He has that ultimate power. Um, And um, the God of the Bible, I think, is limited by His own character. We see that. We said it in the Bible. This actually comes from Chuck Missler. Um, Three things that God cannot do: God cannot lie. He cannot learn, um, and he can't force you to love him. He can't force you to um, obey him. Um, I Number two, especially, I think is great uh, that he can't learn. I think it's important because, um, you know, when we mess up, we sin. We think that, uh, like God, we surprised God, like, oh, dang it, you know. But God knows, God knows all things. He knows when we're gonna make mistakes. Um, he still died for us. He still loved us uh, enough to die for us. Um, because Allah is not limited he can do anything, any time, any place. No limitations whatsoever. Uh, he can go back on promises. Um, he can decide that he hates you if he feels like it. Um, he could wipe everybody off the face of the earth in a in a snap of the finger if he wanted to. Uh, and this is contrasted to the God the Bible that's really limited by His character. He won't go back on His promises. He won't change His word. Um, and I think that that's so key. That's one of the key reason, reasons why we love God. Um, because the Bible is limited by his ho- because the God of the Bible is limited by His holy nature, He's completely trustworthy and He's consistent in all things. Um, Allah, on the other hand, is totally um, unpredictable. He's capricious. He's untrustworthy. He can go back on His word anytime He feels like it. Um, and a lot of Muslims, you talk, to, you know, like so many other religions. If you really boil them down, it's about works, right? It's about getting to God, and and Islam is the exact same way. Uh, you talk to most Muslims, they just are trying their very best to be the best Muslim that they can be and hope that God will have enough mercy on them when they die. There's no assurances. They can't trust in a promise. If God just decides that he, Allah decides that he just doesn't like them anymore, that's it. They're done. They go to hell. Um, and so, major, major difference. Um, and one of God's chief attributes as found in the Bible is love for his creation. In, Quran, in the Quran, Allah is presented as really having no feelings at all towards man. He's just sort of indifferent to man. He created man, but then he's just sort of hands-off hands off kind of a God. Um, so, really quick, before we close, um, I, there's really three, if you, you know, boil down Christianity, um, there's really three things, right? There's you know, Jesus is God, Jesus died, and Jesus rose from the dead. And we can choose to believe those things. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Je- the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, Islam denies all three of those adamantly. It's not just indifferent about those three things. The Quran in multiple places is very, very specifically says that God, Jesus is not God. Jesus did not die on the cross, and therefore he did not need to resurrect um, very, very important. Um, the Quran is extremely clear on that. Uh, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is to be respected in, in the Muslim uh, religion. But um, those three core things that are so vital to us, they deny those things adamantly. So when Jesus comes in a vision to these people in these Muslim countries, which is happening every day, um, they don't know what to do with him. You know, He's a prophet, but um, they have to come up against that um, realization that Jesus says he's God, and he might be God, so what do I do with that? How do I reconcile that with everything I've been lear- uh, taught and learned my whole life? Um, there's a prayer that we will talk about next week. It's called the Shahada. And the Shahada uh, is this prayer that you know, you'll, you'll hear uh, the Muslims pray. They pray five times a day. They bow down. Uh, many of those prayers are just recited prayers. They're not like like we pray a lot of times. We pray from our hearts because we have a personal relationship. They pray just these recited prayers, but the Shahada is the most famous one. It says there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And so right there, it kind of denies what we believe is our core um, fundamentals of of Christianity. So any um, last questions? That's kind of a lot of information. But... What was the guy's name that um, was a convert? Nabil Qureshi. Yeah. Nabeel is N-A-B-E-E-L. Um, in my opinion, he is really the best source at the moment. Yeah. When they throw rocks at Satan, they throw rocks at like a statue or something? So I just read about this. Um, they, there used to be these two towers that they would throw the rocks at, and you have to hit it 49 times, and then you could leave. But one of the problems was is that they were people were so many people were dying because they would accidentally get hit by the stones. They they now just throw it at a wall, so everybody lines up, and they throw it at a wall, and, and um, they actually get really, um, really excited and very like violent, like they're like screaming as they throw it, and they're just mad at the devil. That's kind of how they say it. Uh, but it's uh, um, thousands and thousands of people do it, and, and this this hudge uh, which is. Uh, when all the Muslims go once a year to go um, travel to Mecca, there's millions and millions and millions of them. They, they say just in this one little area, there could be up to five million people. Um, and every year, hundreds and hundreds of people die from getting trampled because there's so many of pe- so many people there. Um, but that's one of the things they do um, is they go and they throw rocks at this wall. So. <clears throat> go ahead, How Annabelle. Do I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, Josh. Yeah. that's where the black stone is inside, so it's like a holy place. So they'll go circle it around seven times and, and that's one of the, the one of the only ways besides jihad that they can uh, wipe out some of their sins is to do that. But the building itself, it it predates Muhammad. Um, so is there anybody that ever goes in there or is there- I don't know the exact layout of it, but my understanding is that the the stone is inside of there, and if you're lucky enough, you can get in there, because it's, my understanding is that, especially during Hajj, you're like, you're barely able to stand up, and if you could get close enough, then you can go kiss the stone, so... I think the reality is that we don't really know what happened with that because they both say different things, um, so I don't know. I don't know the, the people that don't like Aisha—that was his wife's name—the people that don't like her—they're the ones that say, "Well, she poisoned. She poisoned him." Um, so. That's true, yep, yep. It it really is built up verse by verse, and they're all put in at different times, and uh, so the, many of the stories are just not coherent, um, and that's why there's so much uh, there's so much room for interpretation. Of what they would say, so you'll have one Muslim say, you know, we'll talk about this next week, but Islam is a very very peaceful religion, um, and then you'll and they'll point to all these verses, and then you'll have the other person that's the jihadist and they will point to all the violent verses and two very widely different um, interpretations. And it's, it's not a monolithic religion. I mean, there's there a massive amount of different groups and sects, and they believe all kinds of different things. So um, it's difficult, difficult to interpret. And so they would say that the, the imams, which are the leaders, uh, kind of almost like the equivalent of a teacher or a pastor for a particular area, um, the authority structure is so important that if you don't understand something... You don't look into it yourself. You go and talk to the imam, they will interpret it for you and then you get sort of the interpretation of what it meant. And then, uh, and then you, you move on with your life. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, some of the people like Nabil that actually go into it and they were challenged. he was actually challenged by a Christian friend. Once he got all the answers about Christianity that he could get and he just felt like it was rock solid, he then went back to Islam and actually dug into it and just God, I saw so many problems with it. Anything else? Are we good? All right. Let's pray together, okay?